The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. Our message this morning is entitled, Trusting God, and will come from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Our last two messages have been from this passage of Scripture, and... It just goes to show you that Scripture is so rich and so deep that you can take a single passage of Scripture and use that verse, use that passage to share not just one message or two messages, but multiple messages, series of messages from just a single passage because of everything that you can dig out of that passage. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.10, For therefore... We both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Last week, we focused on the phrase, God is the Savior of all men, as we noted, all types of men, all categories of men, people from every nation, kindred, and tongue, especially of those that believe. God has a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. He has a people of the Jew, the Greek, the bond, the free, the male, the female, etc. But there's one category of men that we know for certain that God is the Savior of, and that is His people, those that profess this faith in Him, those that follow Him in this life, those among you, those who are listening to my voice today. But we want to look this morning at the word trust and specifically the concept of trusting God from 1 Timothy chapter 4.10. We trust in the living God, Paul would say. And because we trust in the living God, we both labor and suffer reproach. This verse depicts the simple trust that Paul had for God, which is the trust that we should all have for God. Now, as an introduction, I know that as a fact, many people in the congregation today, many people who are here with us, are going through struggles or trials or afflictions in your life. My grandmother was a cynical person, perhaps I should use present tense words, is a cynical person, and one of the statements that she would often make as a child when I was young is, if it's not one thing, it's another. You probably could finish that figure of speech before I did, and that's why Paul's there. You all know that figure of speech, and it's true to you just as it's true to me. If it's not one thing, it's another. You get through with one trial, and lo and behold, there's another trial on the horizon. And we like to use the concept of storms as we talk about the trials of life, and we recently spoke about that here and use the example of storms. And we did so from Paul's warning that, In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. And we use that analogy of a storm to talk about the fact that if you're not in a spiritual battle in the church, certainly there's one that's approaching. If there's a storm in your rear view, if you keep driving far enough, there's going to be a storm in front of you. And while that's true with controversy in the church, it's especially true in our own personal lives. If you're not in the middle of a struggle, if you're not in the middle of a trial, there is a trial that is before you that you yet have to go through. And if you've lived long enough in this world, you know that to be the case. Now, there are various struggles that we endure in our lives. Paul would 
pour out his heart to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about the fact that he was in many types of perils, perils from robbers. In all of his travels, Paul would sometimes be robbed as he would walk and journey. He would be robbed by men who would lie in wait to take that which was his. Paul didn't have much in this life, but there were people that would even desire to take even what he had. Paul would be in perils from his own countrymen, in persecutions, people who would attack him, and their attacks would not be mere words as we sometimes experience, but they would physically assault him. They would beat him with rods. They would scourge him. They would whip him across the back. They would stone him in one occurrence and leave him for dead in the book of Acts. He was shipwrecked. He floated in the in the middle of the sea. Paul was a man who suffered many perils. And so as with him, many times it is with us, if we're not going through the storm, if the Eurocladon is not tossing the boat as in the book of Acts right now, you know that there's one behind you and you know that there's another one coming. It's just the inevitable reality of life on this planet. Now understand that when God made this world in the beginning of time, he didn't make this world as a place with chaos. He didn't make this world as a place with suffering. He didn't make this world as a place with abuse and addiction and illness and all of the other things that we experience in this life. God made a paradise. When he looks at the creation after he created it in the six days of creation, he looks at everything he made and he said it is very good. Every time God made something, God created the light and he saw the light that it was what? That it was good. He looked at the physical creation, the plant life, the animal life, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, everything God makes, he looks at and he says, it's good. He creates man from the dust of the ground. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam became a living soul. God looks at that living soul made in God's upright image. And guess what he says about him? He is good. He takes a rib from this man and creates for him a wife, a help meet for him. And she was what? She was good. He looks at everything he makes at the end of his creation week, and everything was not only good, but very good. Why then do we live in a world that is full of pain and sorrow and suffering and illnesses and fears and all kinds of other issues? Because shortly after creation, as you know the account, God had given Adam reign over the entire planet to subdue it, to conquer it, to colonize it, to explore it, to be fruitful and multiply, and to fill it with people. And Adam violates the one command that God had given him. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam eats of that tree. Adam sins. He gave him to his wife to eat, and she did eat. And because of that, this ground of this world is cursed. God said, thorns and thistles will it bring forth unto you. It was a paradise in so that in such a way that it was easy to cultivate things that were good, and the good plants and the good crops would weed out the weeds. Any of you, if you've gardened, you know that it is so easy to grow crabgrass. It is so hard to grow corn. What an interesting dilemma that must be for the atheist who doesn't understand the curse of sin. How can you explain how easy it is to grow things that are completely useless and how difficult it is to grow things that we eat, things that are beneficial. Well, the Word of God has the answer to that. This world is cursed because of the sin of Adam. And because of that, 
sin of Adam, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The ground is cursed for our sake. The universe is under a curse of God because of the sin of Adam. We live in a world that has sickness, it has age, it has decay. It waxes old as doth a garment because of the sin of Adam. It is a place that is full of suffering. Every single one of us has experienced suffering. As we speak about suffering today, and our study is on the subject of trusting God, not on the subject of suffering, but if we didn't live in a world full of suffering, we wouldn't understand the importance of trusting God, would we? If everything were roses and rainbows and I like to talk about it a, a marshmallow world with flowers and and everything is just easy you wouldn't have these powerful lessons about trusting God in the middle of the storm because there wouldn't be a storm to endure but because we live in a world full of suffering then we're we're called upon over and over in scripture to trust God and Paul says we so trust in him that we labor and suffer in the preaching of the gospel. There are many causes of suffering in the world. And just as a, a side point, we know that all suffering can be traced back to the sin of Adam. But even under that umbrella of sufferings that are a byproduct of the sin of Adam, by the sin of one man, all of this death and this curse entered into the world from Romans chapter 5, from Ephesians chapter 3. We know that sometimes we suffer in this world because we are chastened of God. Sometimes we suffer in this world because we've lived in such a way that we bring illness upon ourselves. Sometimes we suffer in this world because of foolish decisions that we've made. But we also know that we suffer in this world because of persecution, because the devil despises us and he wants to afflict us. He torments, he torments the remnant of people who obey the commands of God according to Revelation chapter 12. He's full of wrath and anger and indignation. And he seeks to torment us because we love God and we honor God. As an extension of that, we know that Satan sends his minions, his forces in this world to afflict us. And so we suffer persecution at the hand of those who hate Christ. And we know that they hate us not because of us, but they hate us because they hate Christ. The Christ that we love and the Christ that we serve. Sometimes we suffer for the glory of God. There was a man that was born blind and was blind all of his life. And the disciples see him and they ask, Who did sin that this man was born blind, himself or his parents? What an interesting question is that. How could a baby sin in the womb to be born blind? Have you ever thought about the question the disciples ask? Sometimes we ask questions. that They always say there's no such thing as a bad question. But in Scripture we know that there are actually bad questions. There are nonsensical questions. Some questions are bad questions. And Jesus said, neither. For the glory of God, this man has endured this for the sake of seeing God's power upon him so that they might believe in God's power to heal. And Jesus heals this man of his blindness. And he rises and he sees that man had suffered so that God would overrule that and glorify himself in that. Another example of that could be Lazarus, who is sick and nigh unto death and word is sent to Jesus in John 11 that Lazarus is even unto the point of death and Jesus tarries some four days. 
The disciples ask, well, Lazarus is sleeping, Jesus says. Well, if he sleeps, he does well. You know, if you're sick and you, and you sleep, you find healing. And mo- one of the most important things to do when you're sick is to sleep. And they say, well, if he sleeps, he does well. And Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. But Jesus suffered that to be that they might believe, that they might see the glory of God and understand that God alone has power to raise the dead. Lazarus was suffered to endure that affliction that God would be glorified. Now understand that whatever sickness it was that plagued him and whatever sickness it was that plagued the man who was born blind, these are all byproducts of the sin of Adam. All sickness, all death, all suffering comes from that original sin. But we have all these other reasons in the world why sufferings occur. And we'll speak more along those lines later in our message today, but we live in a world that is full of suffering. Sometimes people suffer illness. You might suffer family struggles. Isn't that such a painful thing to endure when life in your home or with your immediate family isn't what it ought to be? We have this burden from God. We understand what home life should look like through the Word of God and through the law of God written on our heart. And when things are broken, the great pain that causes us, and I think every one of us has experienced that in one way or another to one degree or another. Some of you might be suffering through financial difficulties. You don't know how you're going to pay your next bills. You don't know how you're going to take care of things. We might all suffer in different ways, but we all suffer. We all age, and through age, and through this world, and through decay, we all experience suffering, pain, affliction, trials, chastenings, This world is a world full of suffering. And so in verse 10, you see this work its way into Paul's lesson. Therefore, we labor and we suffer. We suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. Now, as we introduce the concept to you today of trusting God, we should understand up front that trusting in God doesn't mean that we will never suffer in this life. Does Paul say, therefore, we labor and never suffer reproach because we trust in God? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be incredible? Oh, just come to church on Sunday and all of your problems will disappear. But that isn't the case in this life. You see, Jesus died to take away all of our troubles and by his stripes we are healed. But our troubles are not taken away in this world They're taken away in the world to come. And in this life, in this, as old preachers would call it, the low ground of sin and sorrow, in this sin-cursed earth, we sojourn as pilgrims and strangers, and we suffer as we live in this world. We journey through this world as aliens and outsiders, rejected of this world, despised of this world, hated of this world, at one time being of this world, yet being delivered from this world by God through His Son Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. We now walk with Him by faith, trusting in Him in all of our afflictions. We suffer reproach because we trust in Him. Just because we trust in Him doesn't mean the problems are taken away. Now, as we think about trusting in Christ, 
Obviously, we trust that Christ is our Savior. And because I trust in Christ, there are differences in my life and the lives of others in this world. What does Paul say in the book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 4? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them that what? That believe. If I believe in Christ and I trust in Christ, there is no reason for me to entangle myself in the yoke of bondage of salvation by works. If you know Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, then you ought to trust him. And if you trust him, then you trust that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to establish your righteousness before him. In fact, your righteousnesses are as what? As filthy rags. And if my righteousnesses are as filthy rags, there is absolutely nothing I can do to merit salvation. I trust that he was made to be sin for me, even though he knew no sin, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. And if I've been made the righteousness of God in him, there's absolutely nothing else that I need to do. Nothing else that I need to try, nothing else that I need to offer, nothing else that I need to add. But if I've got salvation in Christ, and how do I know I have salvation in Christ? Well, He's the Savior of all men, what? Especially those that believe. If you believe, only a born-again person can believe. And so since you believe, it proves that you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, there's nothing more that needs to happen. For you to stand before him in glory. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's nothing else that needs to happen. There's nothing that you need to do. Your salvation is in Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. And when he gave up the ghost on the cross of Calvary, what did he say about it? He said, it is finished. There's no work that needs to be done to add it to the work of Christ in redemption. You are saved through Christ. Now because of that, I trust in him. I trust him. I don't go to bed at night wondering, have I done enough? Have I joined the right church? Have I joined the right religion? I know that if I have salvation through Christ, that is all that I need. And by the way, only through Christ is there salvation. There is none other name given among men, save the name Jesus, whereby we must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. There's only salvation through Christ. And in Christ there is complete and full salvation. And so I trust him. I don't fear death. I don't fear hell. Now I have a reverential fear of God that is born in the new birth. I understand the God with whom we have to do as it were. But you need not to fear death. Death has torment. Faith works by love. Love casts out fear. Fear hath torment. I trust God, therefore I do not fear. But Paul's lesson here has as much or more to do with his own daily life as it does this confidence, this trust that we have that Christ is all of our salvation. Paul labored. 
Paul suffered reproach based upon this trust. Now, I want you to think about the Apostle Paul and the ministry of Paul as we're still introducing this still introducing this topic to you today. Go through in your mind a, a survey of the book of Acts and what you've read about the book of Acts, things that you remember about the book of Acts. Think about the nature of Paul's ministry. If you turn over to the back of your Bible, you probably have maps in it, and you have the journeys of Paul. He made journeys through the entire region of Asia Minor and the portions of Europe into which the Roman Empire spread in that day, and he would sometimes travel by sea, he would sometimes travel by foot, he would sometimes travel incarcerated, incarcerated by the Jews, appealed to Caesar, and went that way from Jerusalem to Rome to appear before Caesar. And through this entire ministry of the Apostle Paul as depicted in the book of Acts, over and over Paul is counting on and trusting in God for his next step, his every move. Now, God didn't micromanage and robotically control everything Paul did. That's not the lesson here. There would be no place for trust. There would be no place for trust if everything's micromanaged. And everything's going to happen no matter how it's going to happen, regardless of how it's going to happen. Paul has to work out, as it were in Philippians, his salvation with fear and trembling. He works out that which God has worked in, but there is a working out that he does every single day in his ministry. He is to work, and as he works, he trusts. There were times that Paul would be led out of the side of a building in a basket lowered by the disciples in a rope to run and escape from those who would have slaughtered him after his conversion. There were times that Paul desired to go into Asia, and God said, No, Paul, don't go into Asia right now. Rather, go over into Macedonia, go into Europe. That's where I want you to be right now. God would close one door, and God would open another door. Paul had burdens that were given to him of God, and yet through it all, he trusts in God to open doors, to deliver him to where he's going to go, to deliver him in the midst of his afflictions, to grant under him a door of utterance over and over and over. Paul trusts in God to, as it would say in the Psalms, establish his goings. Establish his goings. Paul labors and suffers reproach because he trusts in God in all of his labors, in all of his sufferings, in all the reproach he trusted in God. Now, as a principle, we want to look at some of the passages of Scripture in the Psalms that speak about the trust that we ought to have in God. I, I love the Psalms, and I've come to appreciate and love the Psalms even more over the past two years. If the Psalms are not a part of your daily Bible reading, then I would encourage you to read the Psalms. If you've noticed, we've incorporated the Psalms into every single worship service we have here at Flint River. At the beginning of our services, we always have someone now read a Psalm. And if you notice, these are always so experiential. The psalmist, whether it be Asaph or David or any other man, they pour out their heart to God. And so many times you have this backdrop of suffering and affliction, and yet God is holy 
and yet we are unholy, and in him we have righteousness and salvation, and because of that we what? We trust. Go through the Psalms and read how many times the word trust occurs. It would be an encouraging word study for you. Scripture is full of normal people who demonstrated a great trust in God. Now, before we turn to the Psalms, and the first one we'll look at is Psalm 20, I want you to think for just a moment of time about another list of people in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 contains many people in Scripture who demonstrated great trust. And there's a point that I want to make from this. Hebrews 11 isn't necessarily about trust as much as it is about faith, and yet in every deliverance, in every victory, in every trial, in Hebrews 11, throughout the trial, throughout the victory that's accomplished by faith, the person is always demonstrating a great trust in God. So much so that I would say that If you're not trusting, it is impossible to walk by faith. Because if you don't trust, to not trust in God is what? Well, it's unbelief. And unbelief is the opposite of faith. And so the person that walks by faith and not by sight walks by faith always trusting in God. Through Hebrews 11, we read of one man after another, one woman after another, who trusted God and who demonstrated great faith in God, which, again, Christ wrought in them over and over and over, one victory after another by faith from someone who trusted, from someone who did trust. Now, if you're a worrier, this message is so much for you. Paul would say to the Philippians, be careful for nothing. That doesn't mean be as some of the children in my home, and never display any caution. Please be cautious. Scripture would refer to caution as wisdom. When Paul said, be careful for nothing, he meant don't be full of cares, don't worry. Do you feel yourself staying up at night or waking up at three in the morning worrying about people that you know or situations that you face? Paul would say, do not worry. If if the Lord is my shepherd, then... I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. I don't fear what man shall do unto me. Does that mean that men will do nothing malicious unto you? No. That's not what it means. It means that through it all we trust Him. And this will continue to develop before us today. Time permitting, Lord willing. Scripture is full of normal people who demonstrate a great trust in God. To walk by faith and not by sight again requires great trust. Psalm 20. The Psalms are keen on pointing out things that other men trust in and contrasting that with God whom we are to trust in. Psalm 20 begins, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Now this is arguably a messianic psalm. Why do you know this is a messianic psalm? Look at verse 6. Now know I that the Lord saveth his what? His anointed. Now if you're a 
Bible reader, you know that the word anointed in the Old Testament is the equivalent of the word Christ in the New Testament. The word Christ in the New Testament means anointed. The word anointed then in the Psalms usually points to Christ. The Lord saveth his anointed, his Christ, he will hear him, him, not them, not anointed plural, but anointed as in him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. What do you read in the verse before that? We will rejoice in thy salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. This is a messianic psalm. God heard his Christ, and I believe this is personally speaking of his resurrection. God resurrects his Christ. He resurrects his son. And because of that, we rejoice in the salvation that Christ has provided us. But Notice verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and we stand upright. Save, Lord, let the king hear us when we call. In the United States of America, we do very much trust in our military might. Why am I in Psalm 20? Because I want you to know that all the military might in the world is nothing in comparison with the power of God. We trust not in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the Marines, or the Coast Guard. Are we thankful for our military? Absolutely we are. But as Americans, we need to understand that there's a greater force and a greater power in this world than that of the United States military. We trust in God. We trust in God. He is mightier than chariots. He is mightier than horses. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. There will always be a more popular, or excuse me, a more powerful nation a more powerful nation to arise in the world. We might be the world superpower today, but we're not entitled to be the world superpower in 20 years or 50 years. Look back through human history and see all of the militaries, all of the empires. You had the Philistines. You had the Egyptians. You had the Assyrians. You had the Babylonians. You had the Medo-Persians. You had the Greeks. You had the Romans. You had Great Britain, you had the English and the French and the Spanish. Think of all of these military powers in the world. And if you follow the history of any nation long enough, you know that human might and strength is at best temporary, if not outright fickle and flimsy. We will trust, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, there's an interesting example of this in the book of Isaiah chapter 31. In Isaiah 31, Isaiah rebukes Israel because they had gone down to Egypt for their help. Isaiah 31.1, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, And in horsemen, because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. 
Yet he also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words. In other words, the word evil here means calamity. God can send a calamity even on your enemies. Scripture speaks in the Old Testament of God sending evil and causing evil. Understand the word evil in the Old Testament means calamity. It comes from a Hebrew word, raw, and it has reference to natural disasters. Now, does it mean that every natural disaster is caused by God? No, we live in a sin-cursed world that waxes old as a garment. However, God sent earthquakes, and God sent fire, and God sent storms, and God sent droughts, and God sent snakes, and God sent plagues, and God sent leprosies. God caused water to turn to blood. He caused hell to fall and destroy the crops. God passed through Egypt and slew the firstborn of the nation of Egypt among man and beast. God can do what God wants to do, including bring calamity. And when it says that he will bring evil, it has reference to calamity. God can bring calamity on the enemies of his people. And we've seen it time and time again in the history of the world where God brought calamity. There were times that he even sent angels into the camp of his enemies and they slaughtered hundreds of thousands of men in a single night. There is a day that God will bring everlasting calamity to your enemies, to his enemies. He will bring evil and will not call back his words. He will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. Why trust in something that is lesser in strength and power in your desperation? Now to give you the backdrop of this, this is as the empire of Assyria is beginning to encroach upon the borders of Israel. This is at that point in the history of Israel. Before this was all over, the Assyrians would capture Israel. You know that at this point you have Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom, what was left of it, would be taken captive by the Assyrians. And when the Babylonians took over the Assyrians, well, the Israelites who were remaining, they would fall under Babylonian captivity with the rest of Judah as Babylon would go into Judah and take them captive. But as Assyria began their warfare against Israel, what did they do? Rather than trusting in the God that, I don't know, parted the Red Sea, rather trusting in the God that led them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by the day, that caused them to triumph over the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Philistines and all the other ites of the land, that caused the walls of Jericho to fall, not from the outside in, but the inside out, what do they do? They turn of all nations to Egypt. The very people that God had delivered them from. What a slap in the face do you think this must have been to God? I deliver you from these people, and yet you turn in your moment of affliction, and you go back to them for help, to join up with them instead of calling unto me and repenting. And begging my assistance. Because God would have helped. Oh, how many times would God have helped? The Egyptians are men and not God. Their horse is flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall and he that is holpen. Those that are helped shall fall down. They all fall down together. They all shall fail together. 
God is greater than all. God says, why didn't you trust me? Woe unto them that go to Egypt for help. Woe to them that trust in chariots and horses. Psalm 56. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid of what man can do unto me. Psalm 56, 11. As with many of these psalms, you have this expression of affliction from enemies. You can read the subheading of this, the chief musician upon... I'm not even going to attempt to read that name, but of David when the Philistines took him in Gath. So the backdrop to this is military conquest when Philistines came against David in Gath. If anyone wants to demonstrate how to pronounce that word in the subheading, we'll give you a, a dollar after service. Maybe we can make that a competition among our young people. David says, When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. Look at the poetic language of verse 8. Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? You've got a record of all of my tears, of all of my prayers, of all of my petitions. Friends, God knows when you suffer. He doesn't forsake you. In God will I praise His word. In the Lord will I praise His word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid of... What man can do unto me? Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto me, unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt thou not deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? David poses these questions because in his moment of affliction, he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He's seen many men who love God fall in battle and he's begging God, God, deliver me if it be your will. Will you deliver me? But through it all, guess what he says? I trust him. I trust him. Regardless of what happens, I trust him. Similar to that, Psalm 118. Now, there's so many psalms that talk about trusting God, but this is just a a simple taste. Psalm 118 and verse 8, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. I've selected that one this morning because of the current political landscape in America. Because it doesn't matter what political party you belong to, most people in this country think that electing the person with the right letter after their name is going to make everything right. Oh, if we only had this politician in power, what does God say? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in what? Princes. Political power. God is mightier than political power. I have confidence in God. I do not have confidence in political leaders. I don't care who they are. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Does that mean we should be uninvolved? No. When Jeremiah went into captivity, God said, pray for the good of the city that you're called to go into. 
that you're led into in captivity. Because if the city's blessed, you're blessed. If the city suffers, you suffer. Pray for this country. But remember, right now we're in Babylon. This right here is our true home. This place is our true kingdom. This place is our true land. We're merely passing through the U.S. and we do not have confidence in the princes. We do not find our ultimate deliverance from the problems of this world in the princes. When we find ourselves in such a shape in this country, we can look as Israel looked when they joined forces with Egypt. All nations can pass me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. By the way, remember this is a physical king. If it was written by David in a physical kingdom who fought physical battles, when Old Testament Israel fought physical battles in the name of the Lord, they were literally taking up swords and going to combat by faith. Hebrews 11 says that by faith some put to flight the armies of the aliens. It's not talking about E.T. It's talking about invading militaries. They ran invading militaries off by faith. You can read that psalm, the remainder of that psalm on your own. Psalm 146, much like Psalm 118. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. Son of Man there has reference to a human being, any human being. You know that this was a title that Jesus took upon himself in Scripture. This Psalm 146 is not talking about the Son of Man as in Christ. Jesus took that title upon himself, Son of Man, to convey his humanity. He had two titles, Son of, Son of Man to convey his humanity, Son of God to convey his divinity. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in a human being in whom there is no help. Does that mean that people never help? No. If I have someone kicking my door in the middle of the night, there are two places that we're going to go. One to the closet. What's in the closet? Think about it a second. Secondly, we're going to the cell phone because I'm going to call the police. If I see something happening, I'm calling the police. I want help, but understand that our ultimate help comes from where? The Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. Does that mean that we never... Utilize our military. No, remember, the psalmist in that last psalm, he annihilates his enemies because he trusts in God. There's still military battle that needed to take place. What I want to communicate to you today is that even above the military might, the political solutions, or anything else in this country, we are to trust in God before we trust in men and above the trust that we put in men. Jeremiah chapter 17 speaks about this. Thus saith the Lord, verse 5, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. Now, the word arm in the Bible is often used as a metaphor to describe our physical strength. For instance, God's own right arm brought salvation in Isaiah 59, and his own right arm in that passage is a figure of speech, a metaphor for Jesus. The strength of God in this world, the salvation, was Jesus. Anything not in the power of God is the arm of the flesh. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is speaking of in Jeremiah 17.5. Maketh flesh his arm, 
whose heart departeth from the Lord. Now, there's an interesting thought. If I'm trusting in the flesh, then I'm not trusting in the Lord. And to trust in the Lord is to cease to trust in the flesh. Whether you're talking about salvation or you're talking about deliverance in this world. To trust in God is to cease to trust in the flesh. I can do all things through God who strengtheneth me. I can do all things. But it is Christ that enables me. There's still I that needs to do. But I do this through Christ. Jeremiah gives an interesting comparison. Those that trust in man and make flesh his arm, whose heart is departed from the Lord, he shall be like the heath in the desert. I love to use this verse to pick on my good friend Heath Williams. A heath in the desert. What is a heath in the desert? The heath is a juniper tree or a similar bush. A tree in the desert, because of the lack of water, withers, it doesn't grow, it's malnourished. We recently spoke on nourishment. He's parched. He shall inhabit parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land not inhabited. In other words, if the flesh is my strength, if other men are my strength, if anything other than God is my strength, I'm like a malnourished dehydrated plant in the middle of a desert. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. And, and you know this, if you've ever been in the woods, you know that the foliage is so green next to a body of water. Psalm 1 would use the same metaphor if you want to write that down. We won't turn there and read it. But a man who meditates in the law of God day and night and sits not in the seat of the scorner, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Combine those two. Maybe it would be a good idea to speak about the ways that we grow and develop our trust in God. One, I think this happens through experience when you do it. Two, this happens through His Word. Three, this happens through prayer. As we're in Jeremiah 17, we might also point out another thing that we never need to trust. And this is going to be contradictory to the common wisdom of our land today. The heart, you say just follow your heart, trust your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. The heart is desperate above all things. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Do not trust your heart. Trust the Word of God. If what your heart is burdening you to do 
is in agreement with the Word of God, then prayerfully pursue whatever it is that you are attempting to pursue. And there are many things that the Word of God tells you to pursue. To get a job, to take a spouse, to raise children, to own a home, to, to have your adulthood, your life. All of those things are great and good, and there are some of our wants that are involved in that. But the heart is so deceitful and desperately wicked. We go to God's Word to find the roadmap for what we do in our lives. Following the heart is why our country is in such a pitiful shape today. People followed their heart straight into hell, straight off the cliff, straight onto the broad way that leads to destruction. Conversely, Proverbs chapter 3, if you know this proverb, you knew I had to go here. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not unto thine own understanding. Trust in God with all your heart. With everything in you, trust in Him. Lean not unto your own understanding. Our understanding is at best flawed, if not outright deceived or wrong. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. You say, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't know what person to marry. I don't know how to approach this cancer. I don't know how to approach this heart problem. I don't know how to approach this difficulty in my job or what job to take. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. How much better is it in this world when we simply let, let as we simply submit to God and he guides our path? I wanted to share with you, and we simply don't have time to, to do this in depth, the story of Job. Job 13, give you a verse. You know the story of Job, as the writer James said, you've heard of the patience of Job. Certainly we've all heard of the patience of Job. You know that Job was a man that was afflicted greatly. In Job 13, after all of Job's affliction, and even in the midst of some of his ongoing afflictions, you see... Job was a man who first lost his livelihood, then he lost his children, and then he lost his health. He was stricken with boils and had a potsherd that he would scratch himself with as he laid in sackcloth and in ashes. The backstory of this, you know that the sons of God present themselves in the presence of God. Now, you can take that as angels, or you can take that as men in worship, and neither of those have been accepted by sound ministers in the past. Either way, Satan presents himself to God, and God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Now, it's often pointed out that God initiated the conversation, but you have to understand that Satan knows so much about Job. Satan is not omniscient. Satan says, Well, you've got a hedge about him. God says, he's, he's unlike any other man in this world. He's upright. He fears me. Look at all the things that Job does. Satan says, you've got a hedge about him so that he only seeks you because it's easy. He only seeks you because of what you've given him. Take away that hedge. Take away his finances. Take away his blessings and his family. Take away his health and he will curse you. Multiple times, Job is afflicted by Satan. Job doesn't know that in this, that God and Satan are engaging in battle. 
There's an invisible warfare in the life of Job that Job never knows. He knows he's lost his children. He knows he's lost his finances. He knows he's lost his health. Going from being one of the most wealthy, powerful men, revered and honored and respected in his community, to being a, effectively a beggar, covered in sores, laying in sackcloth and ashes, scratching himself with a broken pot. His three miserable comforters, his friends, come to him and they say, Job, you must be doing something wrong. God wouldn't be doing this to you if you were living the way you really ought to live. There's got to be some hidden sin in your life, Job. Is that sometimes the case? Yes. Which brings us a great lesson that a true principle incorrectly applied is just as erroneous. It was a great principle that God judges and disciplines his own children. Amen. That's true, but that's not the case with Job. Even Job's own wife told Job, Job, just curse God and die. Job doesn't know about this battle between God and Satan. But you know what he says? He doesn't say, at this point, woe unto me. He says, hold your peace, verse 13, that I may, or let me alone that I may speak. Let come on me what will. Therefore do I take my flesh and my teeth. Wherefore do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Listen to this. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, because I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite shall not come before him. What does Job say? Though he slay me, I will trust him. Come what may. In my life, I will trust in God. Bad things happen, and many times we have no idea why the suffering or the trial has come. Many times it's simply common to man. It's just a result of Adam's transgression. But the confession of every single lover of Christ ought to be, even if God were to slay me, yet will I put my trust in him. I'm going to give you four reasons we trust in God, and I'm going to close my book. Number one, we trust in God because He is unchanging. God doesn't change. We don't trust in horses and chariots because they may be here today and overthrown tomorrow. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. I trust in my Savior because He never changes. He's immutable. I trust in God. We trust in God. We ought to trust in God because He is all wise. God had a reason for suffering the things to come upon Job, and most certainly He did suffer them to come upon Job. Satan could go no further than God suffered him to in the life of Job. You can do this and no more. Job didn't know why he was suffering. Job just knew he trusted in God. I don't know why some things happen in this world, but I know God is wise. And I know that I live in a sin-cursed earth, and many of the things that happen down here are just because this world is wicked. But I know that God is wise. And I know that if he has a purpose in something, 
like with Job, like with Lazarus, like with the man born blind, then glory be to His holy name. And if I've brought it on myself and I deserve the chastening of God, then to God be the glory and the chastening of one of His sons. God is wise. In fact, earlier in 1 Timothy, Paul calls Him the only wise God. And that's an expression that occurs a few times in the New Testament. The only wise God. God is wise. And Jesus is the wisdom of God personified. Number three, we trust Him because He loves us as a parent. Little children trust their mom. They trust their dad. If they have a good mom and they have a good dad, because they know that whatever their mom or their dad does, they know that their mom and their dad are with them, they care for them, they love them, they provide for them, and even if they're chasing sore, they know that it's for their own good because mom and dad love me. We trust in God because He loves us as a parent. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. Which brings me to my next point. God may not spare us from trials, but through every single trial, through every single suffering, regardless of the cause, God walks with us. He carries us. He strengthens us as His beloved. He lifts us up in our moments of affliction. He bears our burdens for us. We walk through this world through the midst of the fire, trusting in Him who cares, who loves our souls. We trust Him because He will never leave us nor forsake us. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me.